What's up, everybody? Oh, man. It's good to uh, be back on the microphone. Uh, it's been about two months and two days since my last uh, publishing of an episode, uh, at least on this platform. So, like I said, good to be back. Let's see. Let me give you some updates here. Um, I'm going to be... Uh, well, first of all, let, let's, let me let you know what's been going on and why it's been so long uh, since I let something out. So, you know, I went back to work and this is the third time. If you go back in through the history of, of my episodes, you'll see that there's been two other gaps in time and releases and it's all related to going back to work. So for some reason, when I go back to work, I have this block that doesn't allow me to do anything else. Like it's like the, it's like my job consumes so much of my, my time that when I get home, I just don't, it's like, I don't want to do anything else. And I'll sit there and I'll think about it. I'll have the, the best intentions of trying to get over here into my studio and do something. And the moment, like I, you know, take showers, sit on the couch, it's, it's over with, you know, I usually fall asleep sometimes like, you know, five, 6 PM. And I don't know if that had to do with, you know, maybe de being depressed or, or, uh, you know, imposter syndrome or, you know, what it is, man. It just like when I would think of even last night, I knew that I needed to come in here and do this. And I was just like, well, you know, God, I don't feel like doing that. You know, it's like, ah, oh, I gotta, I'm going to have to do this and then do that. And, and just, I make up this, this whole thing in my head. I mean, even to now, this is the, the fourth time that I'm recording this, this intro. Uh, the first time I didn't, I did it on, on something. I didn't like the way that it sounded the second time it didn't, it only recorded like two seconds of it. And so I had to, in it. So this is the, the fourth attempt. And so, yeah. It's man, my head is my my mind is so like I, I don't know what even goes on up there. Let's <laughs> just say that why I, I make things so difficult sometimes. Um, I guess that's the uh, the million dollar question, right? So I don't know. I don't have any answers on, on that front. You know, I I've I've figured a lot of things out, but I still struggle with a lot of stuff too. So you know, I'm just human. Uh, and I'm, I'm trying to figure this out because I really enjoy doing this. I enjoy talking to people. I enjoy, you know, talking different perspectives and, and hearing the way different people think about things or, you know, what they're doing. I, I enjoy it. I enjoy conversating. One of the things that I'm going to be starting to do is cover more stuff about what's going on uh, in my local area. Um, with the, you know, people are rising up against these mandates that are, are being pushed out, which by the way, nothing is in stone yet. Right. So, I mean, it's just their mandates, which are not laws and they're almost like recommendations 
And OSHA hasn't even ruled on any of the things that they put on that. That the uh, that the administration, you know, kicked it to OSHA to enforce and for the businesses to enforce the mandates that they want. So none of that has even been put into anything. You know, right now it's just suggestions and the businesses are the ones that are are enforcing this thing without it actually being law. So what I started, what I got, what I started doing is I got involved with a group locally, a freedom group locally. And this last uh, Wednesday or two days ago, I went to, um, to a meetup, you know, we pick a place that's not enforcing, you know, uh, showing your card and, um, you know, not, enforcing authoritarianism in any way shape or form and that's where we're all meeting up and that's where we're spending our money we're gonna we're gonna reward the the businesses and the restaurants out there that aren't enforcing tyranny and and authoritarianism i think it's a great way to show support and then also too i'm going to be starting to cover some of these uh these rallies that are going on these freedom rallies medical freedom uh just regular freedom you know of of folks in the community and getting their, their perspectives and, and, you know, talking to them and I'm going to bring that to you so you can hear, you know, what's happening in here in Northern California. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, a blue state and it's, you know, one of the worst ones, but I mean, for the folks that can't leave, like I can't leave, I, I co-parent my, my four-year-old, I'm not going to walk out on her because my state's trying to kill me. <laughs> Uh, not, not really, but I mean, you know, if you've been following what's happening with these shots and, and, you know, how many people and, and the side that you're not hearing through the mainstream, uh, or legacy media is what they're calling it. Um, if you're watching that and that's all you're watching, you're not getting the full story. You're getting a curated version of what they want you to hear, which is not necessarily what's going on. In reality. So enough about that. Uh, my guest today is Jeffrey Deskovic. He is a uh, wrongfully convicted individual, but he was also exonerated after spending 16 years in prison from the time that he was 16 years old. So yes, he got uh, convicted of murder and rape as a 16 year old sent to adult prison, uh, maximum security facility, uh, as a 16 year old with a bunch of dangerous men. So, you know, how he got through it is amazing. Uh, his story is amazing. Uh, his resilience and, and, you know, his fight and never giving up, uh, and, and what he learned while he was there as well. And when he got out after he was exonerated, he became an attorney to help other people in the same situation. Amazing story. I hope you enjoy it. This was recorded on November of 2020 last year while I was on my uh, annual crab fishing trip. So, yeah, it's a, it's a great story and uh, I hope you enjoyed it as much I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed talking to Jeffrey. Uh my so one thing I got to let you guys know of is that my show notes were pretty extensive uh up to this point i'm gonna slack off on those just a little bit because that's the part that takes me the longest 
And that's the part that makes me not want to do this <laughs> because I, you know what I mean? It just, it, I'm, I'm not able to, like, once I start something like that, I'm not able to just like, it's either the way that I, it's either all good or it's all bad. And so I'm just going to skimp on it for now. And, you know, if they have like a, a website, I'll put that on there. You know, usually most people's websites, they go right to wherever their, their social media's links are on there as well. So, uh, just don't be too disappointed when you go into the show notes. If you even do, because I mean, I rarely ever go into show notes of, of other podcasts that I listen to, unless there's something that they say that I'm looking for. Um, you know, the, all of them do actually that I have tell you at the end because I give them an opportunity to let you know where you can, they can be found. And so, I mean, you might just have to listen to that a couple of times and write it down. Uh, like I said, apologize. Well, I'm just trying to, to mitigate what's going to make me get these episodes out to you and not like shy away from doing them because I know that I'm going to have to, it's going to be a, a four hour investment of time when I only have one or two. So apologize in advance if that's something that you, you know, dive into and, and, you know, that's not going to be there. Other than that, if you've got any suggestions, you want to send, you know, if you guys are out there and you, you watch a lot of content, you watch a lot of the stuff that's going on, feel free to send me some clips and, you know, I'll check them out and I might incorporate them as well into the episodes when I'm, when I'm, you know, talking to these freedom people, you know, I might put some of that stuff in there as well as I'm, you know, trying to build out some other content and making people aware of what's going on in the world. Right. I mean, go look at Australia right now and see what's happening there. Not very, I mean, you know, what is it? Melbourne, I think is the most locked down city in the world right now. And they have very, very little cases. I mean, compared to everywhere else, I, it's in, in, uh, what the Kiwis too, uh, New Zealand, you know, they're, they're experiencing some of the same stuff. Um, so yeah, look, look at what's going on around the world because if you're plugged into me, legacy media, you're not being told what's, what's happening everywhere. You're, you're being curated, a a a narrative that is meant to, um, meant to divide basically. So anyways, with that. Let's get to the show. Sean Dustin spent time in federal and state prison for drug trafficking and fraud. Upon release in 2006, he had nothing but the clothes on his back, a bag of mail, and legal paperwork. In 2010, he kicked a longtime methamphetamine habit and started the long climb back up the ladder of life. This is the Nowhere to Go But Up podcast. If you want transparency and authenticity, you're in the right place. This is the Nowhere to Go But Up podcast, and this is Sean Dustin. This is the Nowhere to Go But Up podcast, and I am your host, Sean Dustin. 
Today I am talking to Jeffrey Deskovic. Deskovic or Vic? Vic. Deskovic. And uh, this is a wrongful conviction story, another one. Uh, although this one has a way better ending than some of the other ones that I've I've covered. Um, Jeffrey is a very, very, very... Uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, determined and driven individual. And uh, I'm not going to give too much away. I, I'd like to have him tell the story himself. So, Jeffrey, how you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Do you prefer Jeffrey or Jeff? Jeff. It's uh, less formal. More All right, All right Jeff. Nice Jeff, good to meet you, man. Uh, glad you could make it and stop by and uh, join me today on the show. And, um, yeah, I, I'd love to hear the story. It's uh, It sounds super inspirational. And, uh, yeah, go for it. Sure. So, I mean, I spent 16 years in wrongfully in prison uh, in New York uh, for a murder and rape, which I didn't commit. I was um, 16 when I got arrested. Um, I um, got bailed out. I lost the trial when I was 17. So I was in prison from May 17 to 32 uh, prior to DNA testing exonerating me um, 14 years ago. So... So did you have to go to like CYA or did you go straight into the adult system? I went right into the adult system. I had been charged as as an adult. I'm at you're 16 years old. If you're wow. you know arrested for a rape and murder, you can be charged as an adult and therefore tried uh, in an adult courtroom and, and sentenced as an adult and sent to uh, uh, an adult prison, which is what um, happened to me. Man, I can't imagine that. Like, I've done prison my time myself, and that was in my 30s, and I was pretty scared when I went for the first time. So I, I would imagine as a, as a 16, 17-year-old uh, walking into a yard, um, and I, I imagine, did you start off at a high level or? Yeah, I was sent to a maximum security prison because, you know, I had a 15-to-life sentence, and, you know, so that, because of that, then I was sent to a men's maximum security prison and yeah absolutely i was uh frightened for sure i mean i'd never been arrested before you know i've never been to prison before and i was you know 17 years old i was like maybe 150 pounds soaking wet and i'm in a men's maximum security prison you know and then i have a bullseye on my back because you know i'm wrongfully convicted of a rape along with a the murder you know, as a vigilante mentality was people have been convicted of sex offenses so you know definitely um you know, the idea that some the prisoners would discover what I was incarcerated for and then I could be attacked, I could lose my life, any number of things could have happened. So that was, you know, that was always a concern. It was always in the back of my mind. And, you know, throughout the years, you know, I mean, let's be for real. What, what was I going to do as a 17-year-old against fully formed adults, you know? So, you know, there were times throughout my incarceration I was beat up one time when I nearly lost my life. But look, when I got in my uh, mid-20s, you know, occasion here and there, I would start coming up with victories here and there. But, you know, but still, I mean, I wasn't a street kid. And that was not, I was not running the streets or a low, it's a low level crime. And I think maybe I've been in two or three fights in my life before that. So. Yeah, that's a, uh, wow, man. I couldn't imagine that. You just got, got a double whammy there. Um, and so, I mean, anybody, it doesn't matter if you're on the receiving end or the giving end of, of any kind of physical altercation. I mean, it, it creates PTSD. Just just the environment in itself creates PTSD because you're always on heightened alert. 
you know, you don't, you never know if something's going to jump off. And so, I mean, that, that in itself is almost the is so similar to, I think what, uh, people in, in combat situations deal with as well, because it's, it's that heightened alert that you're, you're never able to really relax. Yeah, that's exactly, uh, yeah, that, that, that's exactly correct. That, you know, and people who have studied the impact of wrongful imprisonment on people wrongfully convicted, um, they do say that the closest thing to that would be like a soldier come, um, coming back. I mean, I'll, I'll share that for about six years. I used to go to therapy four times a week. You know, I mean, it's common um, post-traumatic stress disorder and similar symptoms such as panic attacks, anxiety, um, feeling of having been frozen in time, feeling of um, uh, processing things at a slower speed, feeling if you're on seeing law enforcement. So there's all that going on, you know, psychologically in terms of after effects. And, you know, and then there's, you know, the stigma. You know, I was in prison for 16 years wrongfully. Yes, but I was there for 16 years. So how much of that rubbed off on you? Is it safe to be alone in some place with you? Uh, then there's, uh, you know, the technology was much different. So mm -hmm. the GPS, internet that hadn't been uh, invented before. So it's kind of a fish out of water that way in terms of technology and culture was different and cities and towns didn't look uh, the same uh, any, anymore either. And then plus on top of that, just the years I was in prison from age 17 to 32, you know, a lot of growth and development happened at that point. So when I was released, I had to do things for the first time. So I had to get a driver's license. I had never lived alone before. I never went shopping before. Uh, so, you know, I never wrote a check or balanced the budget. So all those things made made it um, particularly um, difficult for me. Yeah, yeah, that sounds like it. So let's... Uh, we'll go what? back there a little bit and talk about the story itself. Um, this, I've I can connect to your Wi-Fi network. You can find setup instructions oh in the help section of your Alexa. That's all right. I'm sorry, that's... Well... Alexa! <laughs> Alexa, shame on you. <laughs> Another piece of technology, right? Yeah, yeah, no worries, man. Right. Yeah, so the year was uh, 1990, and the place was Peekskill, which is in Westchester County, New York. So it was the suburbs. It was, uh, I would describe it as a middle-class uh, city, ethnically diverse. Uh, there hadn't been a murder there in approximately 20 years, so this created an atmosphere of fear, rumor, paranoia. Uh, parents were concerned with their own safety as well as the safety of their children. Uh, I kind of lived a double life as a kid. So after school in the apartment complex that I grew up at, I was like one of the main two kids. So like whatever I would suggest would be what we would do. I mean, we're going to play kickball, basketball. We're going to ride bikes. We're going swimming. We're going to play video games or we're going to do Monopoly or any number of kid games. So uh, that, but that was after school, you know, in school, you know, it was a different, the kids were like a year or two older than me. So they were into like, you know, keg parties and drinking and chasing girls and, you know, organized sports. And that really wasn't where I was at. So, you know, I was kind of like tight and quiet and withdrawn. I didn't like fit in. So when this uh, girl was murdered uh, and raped um, and um, she was in two of my classes as a freshman and sophomore, um, knew her name, she knew mine. That was the extent of it. We weren't even really on a high vibe basis. And um, uh, so the preschool police, they interviewed a lot of students from the school and they told me you might want to talk to me because I didn't quite fit in. So that was how I got on their radar. Um, that was really my first brush with death and I was sentimental and 
uh, they thought that my being emotional was a sign of my being um, sorry for what I had done. And then they got a psychological profile from the NYPD, which purported to have the psychological characteristics of the actual perpetrator, and I had the misfortune of matching them. Uh, came from a single-parent household. My father was never involved in my life in any way, and that intersected with the good cop, bad cop technique, where you know, I began to look to the officer who was pretending to be my friend as a, uh, as a father figure. Uh, prior to being a teenager, I wanted to be a cop. So... Uh, you know, uh, so when I, when I, the police played this cat and mouse game with me for about six weeks. So half the time they would talk to me like I'm a suspect. And then when they would push a little too hard and I would become frightened, then Jeff as the junior detective helper theme was, was, was pushed. That intersected with what I wanted to be when I grew up before I was a teenager and stuff. Um, so they did that for about six weeks and eventually they got me to agree to take a polygraph test, otherwise called a lie detector test. So the next day, rather than going to school, I went to the police station for this test. Because it was a school day, my mother, uh, neither my mother nor grandmother, they didn't call around looking for me. They thought I was in school. So they drove me from Peekskill to the town of Brewster, which is in Putnam County. So it was about 40 minutes away by car. So now I can't leave on my own. Uh, there's no attorney present. I, I wasn't given anything to eat the entire time I was there. They gave me a brochure about how the polygraph worked, but because I had, I had a lot of big words in it, I didn't understand them. Uh, but then I thought, well, I'm there to help the police. So what does it matter? Let's just get on with it. So they put me in a small room and uh, they gave me countless cups of coffee, which had the impact of getting me nervous. And they wired me up to this machine. And then uh, they launched into their third degree tactics. So the polygrapher who was he was a Putnam County Sheriff's investigator, but he was dressed as a civilian. He never identified himself as an officer. He never gave me my rights. So he invaded my personal space, and he um, uh, raised his voice at me. He asked me, kept asking me the same questions over and over again. He was you know, getting more aggressive as each hour approaches, as each hour passed by. And you know, he kept that up for uh, six and a half to seven hours. Towards the end, he said, uh, you know, what do you mean you didn't do it? You just told me through the polygraph test that you did. We just want you to verbally confirm it. So when he said that to me, that really shot my fear through the roof. And that's when the officer was pretending to be my friend. He came in the room and told me that the other cops were going to harm me, but that he'd been holding them off and couldn't do so any longer, that I had to help myself. Then he added, look, just tell them what they want to hear and stop what they're doing. You go home afterwards. You're not going to be arrested. So being young, naive, frightened, 16 years old, being in fear of my life, uh, being overwhelmed emotionally and psychologically, you know, and this, this threat and this false promise, I mean, I made the decision to uh, just tell them what they wanted to hear. And by the time it was all done, I uh, collapsed on the floor into a fatal position. I was crying uncontrollably. And obviously I was arrested. I was charged with murder and rape. You know, DNA tests came in from the FBI lab. It showed that semen didn't count in the victim. But the prosecutor gets the medical examiner to commit fraud and claim, oh, I forgot to document medical evidence uh, six months ago, hundreds of autopsies later. Uh, later I, you know, I'm remembering now that I forgot to document medical evidence to show that, you know, the victim is sleeping around, which is what allowed the prosecutor to argue that it didn't matter, the DNA didn't match me. And then he mentioned another youth by name that he claimed it stuck with the victim, but he never um, had a DNA test performed in order to prove that, and he didn't even call him as a witness. 
He just made the unsupported argument to the jury. On the other hand, my public defender essentially didn't defend me. He really met with me. He always shut me up when I tried to explain to him what happened in the interrogation room and that I was innocent. He didn't cross-examine the medical examiner. He wouldn't allow me to testify. That sort of threatened false promise because when they came to court, the cops left those details out of their story. Uh, he never explained to the jury what the DNA not matching me meant. He never used that to argue that it proved the confession was coerced and false. He never cross-examined the medical examiner. And lastly, he never should have represented me because this other youth that the prosecutor was falsely claiming and slept with the victim was represented by another another attorney at the public defender's office, and specifically by the lawyer who's supposed to be supervising him on my case. So that prevented us from asking him for a DNA sample and calling him as a witness. And so the end result of it is I was wrongfully convicted and given a 15-to-life sentence. Man, you know, when you're when you were explaining your the interrogation process, uh, you know what what went through my head was uh, uh, to make making a murderer when they did uh, Brandon Dessie. Brandon Dessie, yes. What I mean, that's so wrong on so many levels, you know. But yet they they're allowed to get away with it. They're allowed to lie and do whatever they have to do in order to get you to say what it, what you need them to say or what they need you to say. Um, so at what point did you decide that, um, that you were going to like, I mean, what was going through your head? You went, you, you went to prison. We know all of that and you can imagine what that's like. We don't need to go into the details. If you want to know what prison's like, there's plenty of TV shows that you can watch that'll, (laughs) that'll show you. Um, but at what point in your in your journey of 16 years, did you, did you go, okay, well, I'm going to fight this. This isn't over. I'm going to do whatever I have to do. Did you go to the law library? Did you? Yeah. Yeah. I understand the question. Yeah. All right. So very early on, uh, when I arrived at the, and I got past the reception center, you know, and I went to the, you know, the regular prison, um, I met this old timer pulled me aside and he said, look, you, you know, you got to go to the law library. You got to fight your case. You have to learn the law, you know, um, and I didn't need, need much convincing because I knew that I had gotten a crappy defense. And so I didn't trust lawyers to defend me anymore on, on their own. So I did I did exactly what you just asked me. I did go to a law library and I used to collect articles about other people who had been exonerated. And, you know, and um, I fell into like the routine. I mean, certainly getting through the experience I and mean, the belief in God was part of that. Uh, you know, I found little, little things to do. I mean, I read so from 1998 to 2006, I used to read three or four nonfiction books a week. So I used to go to the general library a lot. Um, I had little routines. When I, when I would place, when I go to rec, when I go to the yard, you know, I engage in this elaborate delusion. I made pretend like I was a professional basketball player and <laughs> ping pong and chess. And but it was much more than kids just, you know, imagine kids fantasizing on the playground. I mean, I needed to leave the prison for a, a couple of hours, and so I engaged in this elaborate delusion and. Really, the correctional system kind of helps you along a little bit. It's not, it's not the prison warden. It's the superintendent, and you know, it's not the uh, prison guards. It's the correction officers. And you know, you pretend you're not going to my prison assignment in the morning and the afternoon. And I'm going to work or I'm going to school. You know, so all those things you try to normalize things, and you 
uh, finding little habits. I mean, I used to listen to sports talk radio, for example, on Saturdays, but it wasn't it wasn't simply sports talk radio. It was my lifeline to it was my lifeline to the outside. I mean, they gave us televisions in the cell in 1998. I mean, for the most part, it stayed off because I was reading books and you know writing letters and going to law library. But when it was on, I would I would I would watch um, certain programs every week. And I you know again another delusion. I would pretend like I'm visiting with friends and I see the same program and you know so I mean all you, you find those niches and you know you, that you I made it made a go of it and you know but maybe a key thing too just mentally is that you know I convinced myself that I wasn't doing some 15 a life sentence that I was just doing a year or two to the next legal proceeding which I was sure I was going to win because I knew I was innocent and I naively thought that the court system got better the higher up you went so I mean I kind of like lived from appeal to appeal uh, on that way and I had to keep fighting off feelings of hopelessness, helplessness, thoughts of giving up and, you know, um, suicidal ideation. But, you know, just to comment, but to digress for a second, I mean, the reason that I didn't, you know, give in to all those, the reason why I held it together mentally is because I knew that nobody was coming to my rescue. So I had to, I knew I would have to go out and recruit somebody to help build that bridge between me and the necessary legal help. So I had to hold it together to make that happen. And I frankly didn't commit suicide or try because I was too afraid. I think, like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm even going to manage to get this wrong, okay? And now I'm going to still be in here, but my neck is broken, or maybe I'm damaged myself mentally, you know. So uh, I, I didn't because of that. Yeah, it's a that's a, a great point that you made, um, and you know, you you can't you can't when I didn't have a lot of time. I had three years, but thinking about it. It makes a lot of sense, you know, when you think, you know, oh, you have all of this time. I mean, it just seems so insurmountable. But I mean, if you right. just go to the next, all right, let me just get to this point. And then when you get to this point and you figure it out, it's almost like, it's almost like, uh, like making goals for yourself, yes. you know, and then once, once you attain that goal, okay, let's reevaluate and see where we need to go next and then next. Um, how many times did you, did you get your hopes up and they just got shattered and you lost on an appeal or, you know, it's like, how many times did you get denied before they actually let you out? Yeah. So I lost seven appeals. Wow. Uh, then I wrote an uncountable number of letters for four years looking for an attorney investigator. Cause as you know, when your appeals are over, the only back in the court is if you can find some previously unknown evidence of innocence. So mm -hmm. I wrote letters for four years and I rarely got responses other than the occasional no. So in a way, those were like other rejections, you know, and then I went to the parole board where be largely because I maintained my innocence rather than expressing remorse and taking responsibility, I got turned down there as well. Um, so all those rejections and ultimately I did win because um, a letter that I wrote to a book authoring care the publishing company was instead sent to an investigator and she agreed to help me network to the innocence project she lobbied them she got other people to lobby them and i got lucky that one of the intake workers uh represented my case um they, she presented it three times to the to the, to the lawyers one well, I mean, you get presented and it's turned down that that's the end of the road but she kept presenting it and um she got them to take my case so getting their representation was the key the district attorney that had fought all seven of the appeals, including blocking me from getting further uh, DNA testing. <clears throat> she um, she left office. Her successor allowed me to have the testing. 
And then we got lucky that we were able to identify the actual perpetrator. So he had killed a second victim uh, three and a half years later after killing the victim in my case. He got caught for that. And as a result, his DNA was put into the data bank so that when I did get the testing, that um, it matched him. And then he then confessed. And so my case was ultimately, you know, dismissed on actual innocence grounds, whereas he was arrested and not convicted for crime. So I have a I have I have a two part question. Um, the first part is 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 how prevalent is wrongful conviction? I mean, it seems like every time you're looking at something, you know, there's tons of stories that come out about people being wrongfully convicted and uh, and winning. Um, that's the first. Like, how prevalent do you feel that that is? And then the second part would be what advice? Well, now go ahead and finish that one because you might forget. Yeah, sure. So. Uh, look, you you can't really measure the number of wrongful convictions. You can only really measure the exonerations. Mm-hmm. That's the ones that you know about. So, uh, you know, they're, according to the National Registry of Exoneration, the, the total number of exonerations across the country from 1989 forward is at 2,691. Those are the people that have made it out. Um, I, I It's different estimations. I mean, I... I've seen 1%, half a percent, 3%, 3 to 7%. I personally think that it's 15 to 20%. Um, I think that the, I think that it's much higher than what these conservative numbers are. And when I think about like 18 to 19 people that I did time with have been exonerated either before me or after me. Um, I think about other things like, you know, most of the organizations in the field, they only take on DNA cases. So, that's only around five to twelve percent of all serious felony cases. So most of those people don't have anyone that's willing to work on their case pro bono, seeking to exonerate them. So those are many cases that we'll never learn about. It was a Wayne State University study in regard that estimated ten thousand people are wrongfully convicted each year. So I think then the number is fifteen to twenty percent. Man, that's still a lot. Now, would you would you say that it's most of this is just due to poorly trained investigators or police officer or law enforcement or is just being lazy uh, uh well i think well I, I mean it all starts on the level of the of the police I, I don't i don't think that you know they're you know i think i need to be trained better i don't think that they know like what the red flags are that an identification you know may, might be mistaken that a confession is um maybe maybe uh maybe false or that you know, that an informant is lying. So, I mean, it starts there. Uh, there is misconduct. A lot of times there is misconduct in the part of the police as far as you're not documenting witness interviews or coming to court in line, which is called test lying or withholding evidence of innocence. Some of it is uh, tunnel vision when they only pay attention to evidence that uh, confirms their conclusion. But that's on the police level. But I mean, on the prosecutors, I mean, they're not looking for wrongful conviction cases. They're also you know, are, are not familiar with what the red flags are. And, and I think that they get caught up instead of trying to pursue justice. They're just there to win. Mm-hmm. Uh, prosecutorial misconduct is a major factor in wrongful conviction cases. It runs through most of them in terms of the causes of wrongful conviction. I mean, you mentioned tunnel vision and the police misconduct, uh, the prosecutorial misconduct as far as uh, not turning over evidence of innocence or, you know, making making improper opening or closing remarks. But we have the systemic thing still. I mean, coerced false confessions at 25% of the DNA proven wrongful convictions, misidentification at 75%, lying informants 
bad lawyering is, is definitely a big part of um, uh, wrongful convictions uh, being caused. I mean, there's forensic fraud, there's junk science, things that have been accepted in the courtroom as evidence, uh, things like um, bite marks and tire tracks and footprints, which are sound scientific, but there's it's actually not. I mean, hair comparison. The reason why it's not is because there are no there are no comparative tables. No one knows what the error rate is. So to say that your the footprint happens to match, you know, the size shoe and type of footwear you're wearing, okay, yeah, you and what, ten thousand, hundred thousand? How many other people could have generated that? So that's not really very statistically significant at all. So when I think about all those causes and you know how just one uh, I mean, I remember there was one rogue um, a forensic analyst, Annie Duquesne from Pennsylvania. And, you know, she went to prison for a couple of years because she was just falsifying test reports and even doing the testing. And there were several thousand cases right there. Uh, you look at um, Brooklyn, there was a disgraced detective, uh, Scarcella, uh, 17 people that he uh, you know, arrested have been exonerated uh, so far. And th- those are just examples how one rogue actor can impact many many people. So all those things go into my estimation of thinking, hey, this is maybe 15 to 20%. So as an attorney yourself, um, yes. and we haven't got to that part yet, but the question that I, the next question that I have pertains to lawyers, prosecutors, um, you know, judges and the police department. Do you feel that if qualified immunity was removed from all of them, that they would we would see a, a huge difference in the way things are done. Hundred percent. Yes, I do. So qualified immunity, you know, is um, you know even uh, you know even just uh, you know prosecutorial. Immunity. I mean, the judges have absolute immunity, and the, you know the prosecutors have the prosecutorial immunity. So what that means in terms of the prosecutor is that you know no matter how serious the misconduct is that they commit, I mean, they, they could withhold evidence of innocence, or they could. Suborn perjury or threaten witnesses or not correct perjured testimony. It doesn't matter how egregious it is that they do it after an arrest has been made, then they have immunity for it, which means you can't, you can't sue them. So like I sued the prosecutor anyway, and I lost that part of my lawsuit because of uh, immunity. So I do think that if that was removed, then you would see a big, uh, you would be, a, you would see a big change then. But I also think that when there's clear cut intentional misconduct. You know, I think that that should be criminalized. I think that they should be an incarcerated penalty as well, because why should we have a class of people that are above the law? No, that's absolutely right. And I mean, we're seeing that today in our own society play out in, in the things that are going on right now. And, you know, if you, you start throwing people, you start throwing people's asses in jail, things start changing, you know, Oh, you know, now, now it's, now it's a big, Oh, now I want to do the right thing. Right. It's uh yeah. Yeah, jail is, is definitely a, 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 for, for most is an attitude adjustment, you know, um, or yeah. at least the threat of, of being, having that over your head. Um, I think the next question that I have for you, and then we can move into the, uh, to the next part of your story and how you became a lawyer and you know, what the, how you managed to do that. Um, but this is more for like family members that may be watching for somebody that they feel is wrongly fully convicted in their own family. Um, and they're at the point where, you know, all the appeals are lost and everything else. Like, what would you suggest to them, um, to, to get them through or, or where they should look or what they should do? 
Right. So I think that what they should do is so the the defendant himself, the person who's in prison himself, they need to put together like a really short, nice and tight letter. You know, first sentence, my name is so-and-so, and I've been wrongfully convicted of such-and-such. Such. You know, I've been sentenced to such-and-such such amount of time, and I've currently been in prison for such and much. Uh, next sentence, I'm innocent. Next, mention what is the evidence, the evidence used to convict me was. Bang. And don't soft-pedal, don't leave anything out. If you do, you're all done. Uh, next thing, then you would then, the problem with that evidence, you mention what the flaws are. Next thing, Mention the top two or three facts in the record that can be uh, verified that are the best facts pointing to your innocence. Next thing, the reason why I am writing you is because neither I nor my family have any money with which to hire an attorney and investigator, and we would like you to consider taking my case pro bono. Next sentence would be, you know, here are some directions to go in investigative-wise that I think possibly could turn up some previously unknown evidence of innocence. Next sentence, I have legal documents to prove what I'm saying. I'm not sending them to you right now out of respect for your time. Uh, please let me know if you'd like to see any of them. And then you end the sentence. So you have to have that really nice and tight, you know, you can't airtight type of thing. And then you, you spray it around. Keep track of the places that you contact. And this is where the family part of it comes in. And, you know, just doing, putting together like a document that, List all the large firms, mid-sized firms, and small places, you know, that have a pro bono section. In. You know, they will advertise that. You make a list of them. You make a list of other lawyers that, and, you know, mid, large, middle, solo, down to solo practitioners that don't have a pro bono section on. And you want to fo follow up and spray that letter around and keep track of, you know, what date and follow up periodically. And the idea is you're trying to catch lightning in a bottle you know, that somebody will agree to pick up your case. Okay, no one's going to decide to represent you based on one letter. Well, all you're trying to do as the letter writer in that situation is you want to get somebody's attention. You want them to think, well, yeah, if that is true, then I could see how they might be wrongfully convicted. Yeah, let me look into this just a little bit more. You know, so that's all you're trying to generate as the writer. So most people, they write way too much. You know, they flood people with details. It's too hard to follow. They send all their legal work. The more you send, the less likely you're going to get a response. So that's in terms of a methodology of looking for help. I mean, look for an innocence project that's in your geographical entity, uh, area, but you're not going to limit it to that, okay? Because remember, most of them only do DNA cases. So that's that would be one thing. Another thing, uh, definitely learn going to the law library is important. Um, reading about other wrongful conviction cases, the, the ones, especially the ones that ended in exoneration. You know, I did, I did that and uh, I was um, looking for inspiration to keep going. Uh, then I was also looking at what route did they take, who literally helped them, and those were other people to contact. So those were things I would say avoid the prison politics. I mean, look, your goal is to regain your freedom, overturn the conviction, regain your freedom, rejoin your family, live your life, right? Like, nothing going on in the prison for the most part of any kind of importance. So don't don't get distracted. Uh, I would say use your time wisely. I mean, I took vocational programs and educational programs, anything that had any kind of potential benefit for me if and when I was able to come back home. That's how, that's the programs that I focused in on um, taking. So those are the things that those are the things that um, work for me. Um, you can, in terms of this, the outside contacts important. So I mean, so if you are your family member is wrongfully imprisoned, I mean. 
getting as many people from the family and friends just to maintain touch. I mean, I know I know somebody, they have they, they take a systematic approach to it. They work the visit schedule and, okay, we have a slot this weekend. And mm-hmm. But if everyone just does a little bit, you know, maybe you pop up and see someone once every two months, but other people are doing the same thing and they have a different person to call, you know, once in a, you know, and you use a letter or a card or something. I mean, all of that's important to help on the, on the morale level of it. So all that stuff counts to me. Yeah, that's great information, man. Thank you. Here now we're going to get to the bonus part of this because this this is definitely um, what sets what sets this story apart from most wrongful convictions is the path that you took when you got out. Right, right. So when I was released, um, you know, I did a two and a half to three and a half hour off the cuff presentation at the press conference. <laughs> Everything I had ever wanted to say but couldn't get anyone to hear. Yeah. And just as I thought I was wrapping up, a different topic came to my mind, and I just started elaborating on that before I knew where all that time passed. And that was kind of my aha moment that I realized that, you know, I could be part of the innocent school without necessarily being an attorney. So I, um, for about five years, I was an individual advocate. So, I mean, I was speaking, and, you know, and I had a Mate was making some money doing speaking engagements in New York and across the country, and I was doing media interviews, um, basically trading privacy for awareness. Uh, I became a weekly columnist, so um, I was doing that, and I was meeting elected officials. You know, one thing that crossed my mind, you know, when I was in prison, I used to read about people who were exonerated. They would get their initial five minutes of pain, and then they disappear. And I always used to frustrate me, like, you know, why don't they reach back and like, try to help the rest of us? Why don't they at least raise awareness about that their case is not isolated, that there are other people promptly in prison. So when I found myself unexpectedly free, I kind of drafted myself and I said, you know, you were pretty critical of everybody and now you're unexpectedly free. So why don't you get out there and show them how it's done? You know, so hence my motivation that way. And, you know, I needed to, you know, I need to make my suffering count for something, you know, and I do believe that my purpose in the world is to fight wrongful conviction. And you know, and and, and uh, doing the advocacy work is a way to express that, and that's how I I take that energy that I would otherwise feel, and I channel it to that work. And so you know, I'm not an angry or a bitter person. So I did that for about five years, and uh, then I received some financial compensation, and, and I wanted to be more involved. I wanted to continue the policy and education work, but uh, I wanted to be involved in freeing people who are wrongfully in prison. So I took some of the money and I started uh, the Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation for Justice, which would continue the policy and public education work, but more importantly, you have the additional element of you know, uh, freeing people wrongfully in prison. So we've been able to get uh, eight people home. We are wrongfully in prison. We have 11 active cases now. I'm an advisory board member of a coalition group called It Could Happen to You, which um, the foundation is part of in New York. So I, the foundation was able to help pass laws pertaining to DNA database expansion, better identification procedures, videotaping, interrogation. Through the coalition, we passed an oversight board called the Commission on Prosecutor Conduct. So oversight with prosecutors, we passed discovery reforms, so that is a better process in New York in terms of information sharing between the defense and prosecution. Uh, we just passed the, passed the law in Pennsylvania pertaining to expungement. So we're working on a policy level in New York, California, and Pennsylvania. So the foundation does its policy work now just through that bigger coalition group and that's it's um, more effective that way. Um, but at some point, 
sitting in the front row of the courtroom wasn't enough. So I wanted to be able to represent some of the clients myself and sit at the table and uh, hence my decision to make a second foray into law school. I tried to, I tried, when I was in prison the last few years, I thought about, you know, if I can ever get out of here, I'm going to become a lawyer and, you know, exonerate other people in my position. Uh, I tried to do that when I came home after um, I had gotten a scholarship from Mercy College to finish the bachelor's degree. And, and I, I took the LSAT. I tried to get into law school and I, my score was frankly too low and I didn't get in. But maybe seven years later, you know, I thought about it again. I made a second attempt and I got through. And so I graduated this past May to 2019. And uh, so my birthday is October 27th. And uh, I got a birthday gift early uh, the day before I got the, got admitted to the bar. So I actually am an attorney now. So. Well, congratulations, man. That's uh, that's quite an accomplishment. Um, what... Uh... There's another. There was one more. There's another one more question I have, and then we can uh, we can go and wrap up. Is uh, the conspiracy? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, the conspiracy conspiracy law, as an attorney, and you know, it's you. It's it's it's. I feel like that law conspiracy cases in general. I mean, it, they're so vague, and you can't fight them. Uh, right. Yeah. Exactly. How are you going to prove you didn't conspire with somebody? You know, it's very, it's, it's, it, it, it is vague. It's very, it is a very unfair, it is a very unfair thing. Uh, I do want to mention that there is a documentary short out about me uh, called um, Conviction, which is available now on Amazon Prime. And, uh, you know, it's, it's been selected in 10 different film festivals. We recently won the uh, Best Cinematography and Best Documentary uh, Award. So uh, that's making the rounds. People can, can, um, can check that out. Uh, we're in the process of converting uh, conviction to an hour and a half uh, feature, so it'll it'll um, have a bigger bigger version of that. And you know that's really has been a major tool in raising awareness and getting my story out there, representing the foundation and the general problem of uh, wrongful conviction. I've been able to you know continue to keep the media stuff going, and that's a big thing. You know, is that I figured out as long as I can give like some there's some new element or something that I can keep the media attention going. You know, and so that's how I've been able to uh, to do that, and just certainly having the nonprofit organization and doing the advocacy work, and now becoming a lawyer. You know, I'm I'm still able to stay relevant in the news, and and I think that you know that's really uh, important. If you the more you we can raise awareness about the issue, then the more the environment is right for change and for other people to uh, get involved in one way or another. No, absolutely. And there's so many different ways now to be able to get stories out there. Podcasting is, is, I mean, it's been around for a long time, but it's, you know, the, I think the, uh, the pan, the lockdowns and the shutdowns and all this other stuff have really brought them to the forefront because for a while it's all anybody can do is, uh, you know. Well, yeah. Well, and similar, similar thing. I mean, podcasts I and mean, blogs, blog talk radio. I mean, the media is more accessible now to the general public, you know, to get your voice out there. Um, certainly documentaries and docu-series have, have really been big. I mean, you know, things like Making a Murderer and, you know, other documentary that really, uh, when they see us, you know, has um, all those things really have raised the level of uh, of awareness. And I do think we're making some inroads in terms of police and prosecutors and uh, judges. And I do believe that each person that makes it out makes it just a little bit easier for the next person to um, to to get out. Because, I mean, the fight most of the time is not simply – the, the evidence and, and the law, but but it's also it's also that I mean you know can can you get in front of an objective judge you know um, so I think judges now are taking things a little bit more 
or more serious. You know, that's really an important thing in terms of being able to um, win your case. Uh, you know, I just want to change topics for just a second. Just in within the documentary conviction, I just want to point out that I mean, one of the things I was able to do there, and I feel really fortunate, you know, that the producer on Geo Works was on the same page as me. But it's not just innocence driven, you know, or, you know, and, and about my, it's sort of mainly about my advocacy in life afterwards rather than about the case itself, which is a little bit different. So I like that aspect of it because, you know, I define myself as an advocate whose motivation, my backstory is, you know, my case, but I'm not limited to that box. So that's part of it. But then aside from that, uh, and understanding my advocacy, yeah, sure, innocence and false accusations is a major part of it, but it's not, it's not the only thing. So, I mean, in that documentary, you know, um, you know, I'm trying to carry water for the other issues. So, I mean, I'm talking about things like things you saw, mm-hmm. you know, like el- elderly in prison and the terrible medical care and, you know, have maddeningly slow, compassionate releases and, you know, and just the abuse that goes on in prison, the need for prison reform and, you know, parole reform and prisoner reentry. So I'm talking about a lot of those issues and, and I'm trying to shed some light on those as well. And I'm hoping just the fact that, you know, that I'm, that I'm innocent and I'm in some quarters, I'm, I'm perceived to be more objective. Like I don't have an ax to grind as opposed to somebody saying something equally as valid, but say they're, they're on parole. So, I mean, I'm innocent like you, but I was there and I saw it and I experienced it. So raising awareness about those issues. I mean, you know, one big thing I have a problem with is that, you know, we're, People are sent to prison as uh, uh, as as punishment, right? With the punishment being you lost your freedom. Mm-hmm. You're not supposed to be mistreated while you're there, and that 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 happens all too much, you know. And um, through the documentary, I'm just I'm hoping to you know change some of that. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. Uh, it, it's it's sad that uh, your 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 record just it, it continues to follow you. And you may have like I've done I did I got in trouble for something when I was 18. And when I ended up going to federal prison, they it it pushed my points up to put me into a medium when my instant offense was a camp uh, worthy offense, you know, and it's like, okay, well, how cool is that? I'm getting I'm getting punished again for something that I already did time for. Right. Yeah. And there's so much discrimination, you know, in terms of um you know, jobs and apartments when people have, have records, um, you know, band of box is an issue that's gained a lot of uh, currency now. I mean, just where, you know, the, the movement is so that, you know, only after a job offer has been extended, could, could they then ask about your record? And if there's no rational relationship between the crime you're convicted of and the job, then they would have to give a reason why they're withholding or withdrawing a a job opportunity. I mean, if we discriminate against people who've been incarcerated and we don't hire them, then we're making the temptation to return back to crime and going back to the old ways, you know, a lot more uh, tempting. And that's just going to result in, in, you know, being being another another crime being committed, possibly another victim, the cost of incarcerating somebody again, as opposed to somebody that's uh, continuing to be free and is paying into the tax base. So, I mean, it just makes sense on so many levels. I mean, just even like... um, you know, uh, college education. I mean, I, I had that much less ground to cover when I was released because they had college education in prison. You know, I got the GED because uh, I had been arrested when I, was, you know, incarcerated when I was in high school. But then I was able to get the associate's degree and I got the, uh, another year towards the bachelor's and the funding was cut. So that meant when I came home, 
you know, I only had to do 10, 30 credits, 10 classes before I got the bachelor's and I had that much less ground to go and I was able to springboard from that to a master's degree and ultimately to a law degree. And I think about like the political rhetoric that, you know, surrounded that whole effort at cutting the college education for prisoners. Well, my, you know, I can't afford, you know, I don't go to college for free, so why should a prisoner, and I can't afford my kid to go, but why should someone who committed a crime go? You know, that was that was a false narrative because, first of all, you know, the financial aid forms were the same. So anybody who was eligible to go to college while in prison would have been eligible to go on the outside uh, just by reason of the criteria in the uh, financial aid forms. And secondly, it was like one half of one percent of the total number of students across the country were incarcerated. So my point is that it's not like that for every person who went to college while in prison, there was someone on the outside who was denied a seat, you know. And then I think if you spend some money on the front end, you know, then uh, then we're saving money on the back end. I mean, there's a nonprofit organization, uh, Hudson Lake, and they they provide college education <clears throat> for some of the prisons in, in, in New York, just using their stats as, as an example. So the national recidivism rate is 68%. And their recidivism rate is too. Hmm. So and when there was college education for prisoners, then you know, the recidivism rate was much lower for college-educated prisoners than not. And it kind of makes sense. It's, it's, it's kind of common sense, really. If you release somebody and you know their horizons have been broadened and you equip them to be gainfully employed, you know, then they have a better chance of getting a better job, which means that the temptation to go back to the old ways, go back to crime, you know, it is much, it's much less. So who do you want living next to you? Somebody that has no skills and, and now has a record and is discriminated against? Or you want someone that, you know, has a college education? You know, I mean, who's more likely to go back to crime? No, that's a, that's a good point. You made a, you made a really good point there. Um, it's, uh, and I, I also think too, as somebody who's been through it, you know, like I didn't get a chance. I had such little time. I was, I spent 18 months in the state, uh, state system got paroled out, went directly into the federal system, did another 18 months. And so I never had a chance. I had so little time in any of them that I, I you can't program because the, the waiting lists are so long. And so if you don't have a long time, you're, you're, you know, you don't get any of those benefits. And that was me. So I, what I did was, you know, I, I concentrated on the outside, you know, getting in shape and staying healthy and, you know, trying to stay out of trouble. Uh, but none of the inside got taken care of, you know, all of the criminal, cause I was a criminal. Um, and so, uh, you know, all of the, the criminality, the behaviors, all of the stuff that, that, you know, got me there never, it just, it just got buried. And then as soon as I got out, it's like, boom, there it is again. You know, it pops up at some point. So, I mean, I really think that, you know, because I'm in the reentry space myself. I belong to a, coal a reentry coalition. We probably know some of the same folks um, on uh, on Facebook. Um, and so, you know, that's that's what my goal is now. And I've got a nonprofit that I'm in the in the process of forming uh, for guys that are coming out um, of incarceration back to the community and trying to figure out a program that I can start and, and help in that in that aspect. Yeah, sure. Let me just piggyback off that. Just you know, maybe we'll, I'll send you a link or something offline. But you know, I am a co-owner of um, what's called Recharge Beyond the Bars Reentry Game, and it facilitates uh, formerly incarcerated people with you know reconnecting with friends, family, and even other people incarcerated. By it. the game has uh, a series of uh, has like a lot of icebreaker type of 
questions and mm-hmm. uh, you know some of the organizations some some reentry organizations use them uh, as a basis for group discussion or journaling or even just playing just straight up playing the game you know and I'm, I've always felt more connected with people that that when I sit down to play that I didn't know and you know, I use the game personally you know and it's helped a lot in terms of with my uh, extended family so but I, I do. You know, I do think that a lot of the uh, the same needs that exonerees have when they're released, the same thing that people have, you know, when they're, you know, when, when they're paroled. I mean, yeah, there's 15 states that don't have compensation. We're working on that in Pennsylvania. Um, but even the states that do have them, I mean, some of the ones that they counted, uh, like Montana, for example, they, their version of compensation is uh, they allow you to have a university education, and that's it. You know, other places uh, like Wisconsin may give you five thousand dollars a year with a, with a cap of five years. You know, um, and but but all the places. I mean, even New York, which I, you know is, I would say is progressive. We have compensation statute. I was compensated, you know, by, by them, and I was able to bring federal civil suits successfully also. But they have no reentry assistance even for people that are exonerated. I mean, I. Uh, you know, I think that things like you know housing, cost of living, mental health, doctor and general access to public transportation, classes on technology, job training, job placement. I feel like all those things should be should be offered, um, you know, for uh, people with been exonerated rather than you know just released with nothing. I mean, it took me five years, you know, before I got anything, and I didn't get any assistance. So it was a struggle. I mean, all the psychological things, the social stigma, always being passed over for gainful employment. You know, I lack stability of housing. I nearly ended to a homeless shelter. And, you know, I feel like when people have been wrongfully imprisoned, I mean, it's hard enough to try to, to try to reenter and, and, and uh, deal with the traumatic and all those other aspects that we've talked about earlier. But I don't, you know, I think that there should be immediate governmental assistance, you know, provided. And I do think that, yes, there should be more programs on the inside. I mean, we should get away, do away with waiting lists. Let's just put more money in. To vocational training and college, and you know, and, and make sure the curriculum is obsolete. I mean, I, I did program models in the state system, but most of the instructors, but they were only there for a paycheck. They would just hang out in their office and they'd be minimal instructing. And you know, the curriculum was obsolete. I feel like it should be should be modern, and there should be you know tests that they can audit every so often. You know, which are right, you guys have been in here for three months, and let's see if this instructor really has been teaching you. What, what do you got? Let's see. Yeah. You know, so I think that's it's an investment, you know, ourselves as a, as a society. And, you know, you mentioned starting, you know, starting a nonprofit to do reentry work. I mean, so many people who were uh, formerly incarcerated, when they come home, they want to be in job, in, involved in something that involves making a difference and giving back. And whether that's reentry or diverting people from from uh, from prison in going to prison in, in the first place or doing policy work, there's a lot of really meaningful contributions that many of us make who were who were incarcerated before. And so I think equipping people with the tools that they need while they're on the inside and then assisting them more on the outside. I mean we're as a society, we're benefiting as people do that. So I think it's you know I, I guess my bottom line is that I feel like rehabilitation should be because of the system, not in spite of the system. And I don't think there's enough of that uh, now it should be facilitated. You know, by the government, yeah, that's a, that was another good point. So we are rolling on the hour here. Um, any any last uh, things that you want to? Any burning desire that that you didn't touch on that you want to touch on? 
Well, I'll just mention that, you know, we, um, um, I mean, I, I, we have about 11 cases that are active now. <clears throat> so, uh, <clears throat> you know, I am in, intending to um, enter those cases as, as co-counsel and continue to do advocacy work. You know, we do have a crowdfunding site on Patreon, you know, my dreams. What if 25,000 people are willing to part with $3 a month on a recurring basis? You know, that would give us funding that we need to hire attorneys, investigators, paralegals, other essential personnel to, you know, do this advocacy work, work when the uh, organization. So I'm hoping that, you know, people will listen, they'll contribute. More importantly, that they'll help me get the word out there, social media, word of mouth, or anything else. You know, we need to expand it out and make it go as far and wide as we can. So that would be something that I had a burning desire to uh, mention. Um, in terms of just general life lessons, I mean, I don't think that my story is limited to lessons pertaining to the justice system. Uh, I would say things that from my surviving in prison to uh, being able to graduate law school, um, the keys are, keys to that would be just set, set a goal, have a plan, be flexible enough to vary the plan. Remember, the goal is the goal. The route's not the goal. Be willing to change the route. Uh, don't be don't be afraid of hard work. You know, just take no for an answer. There are no there are no there are no reasons why you can't make something happen. There are reasons why it may be more difficult. But there's no there, there's no reasons why you can't do it. You just have to leave it all out on the field. Go all out for your goal. I think if you if you do that, you can accomplish things. And you know, I uh, I, I live by that. You know, I don't I don't give up. And um, aside from that, uh, I'll just mention that I appreciate the small things. I mean, I I like feeling fresh air on my face and feeling the sun or you know, being able to travel and, you know, freedom of uh, movement and all these things that, you know, really you don't, you don't have at all in any aspect uh, once, once you're, you're in prison. So I appreciate the small things and I try to live in the moment and uh, I love trying new things or going new places and trying new foods or having new experiences. So I guess the theme of it is don't be afraid to expand at your horizons and try different things and just the sheer amount of you know, educational opportunities or other opportunities that exist in the world. I mean, it's there if we, it's there if we want it. But, uh, you know, we just, we need to, uh, we need to want it. And, you know, maybe look at my story and then reframe the challenges that somebody has in their life and put them in perspective. I've had a lot of people tell me that when they do that, everything suddenly seems a lot more manageable for them. So if I can serve as an inspiration in that way, then, you know, then that makes me, that makes me feel good. You know, my life is all about, making a difference, living a meaningful life. And I think it's important to find something that you really like doing that makes a difference, you know, rather than just doing something strictly for a paycheck. So that's really the ticket to, that's really the ticket to happiness. You know? So those are my, you know, penny for my thoughts. Well, that's amazing. And that's awesome, man. And thank you. Um, yeah. And, and what I got, you know, from that is don't wait for somebody to rescue you. Right rescue yourself at yes. least at least start there and then yeah. you know when you're willing to rescue yourself then people are willing to help help assist you right well rescuing yourself part of rescuing yourself is being proactive and looking for people who will assist you that that's what people you have to do as opposed to just do nothing sit there and wait for somebody completely out of the blue to contact you totally unsolicited it's probably not going to happen that way you know, just be willing to help yourself and work hard. And part of helping yourself is networking and looking for other people who can help you in one way or another as you move towards your goal. So I, I definitely agree with how you put it. 
Absolutely. Well, thanks, Jeff. I really appreciate you taking the time to come talk to me this morning and share your story and your wisdom and your inspiration uh, to somebody out there that uh, hopefully will get something out of this. Um, you know, a family member, you know, who knows, somebody may be listening on a, on a, on a uh, contraband cell phone somewhere, um, you know, and could, and, you know, may need to hear this. So I definitely appreciate it. And uh, congratulations on uh, the, passing law school that's a hell of an achievement man thank you thank you very much for having me and listen from where i came from just everyone should remember there's nowhere to go but up absolutely brother thank you you've been listening to the nowhere to go but up podcast sean is a single dad a union blue collar guy and he spent time in federal and state prison for drug trafficking and fraud when he was released from prison in 2006 all he had was the clothes on his back a bag of mail and some paperwork since then he's turned his life around and shares the struggles and successes on this podcast we hope you enjoyed the show and we hope you were moved to connect to the show book a guest spot for merch patreon paypal and social media links go to linktr.ee slash nowhere to go but up on instagram at nowhere to go but up now on twitter at but up now on the youtube channel at nowhere to go but up podcast see you next time